This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Thank you so much, Jeremy, and thank you, Cal Performances, uh, for this invitation to engage in this really great conversation with Tristan. Tristan, it's such a joy to have you here and to be beginning this conversation on arguably the most pressing issue of our times. Um, The crisis you revealed to millions of people in the social dilemma has crushed journalism and its ability to serve its role in our democracy. We as journalists, journalism educators, citizens of this democracy and human beings appreciate your role in bringing a deeper understanding of the harms of social media to our attention. And we have so many questions. Um, The audience has submitted 99 questions even before this event today. And um, I've included some of their questions in the questions I'm going to ask you. Um, And I want to say to our audience, please keep the questions coming. Um, My colleagues here are going to gather them together and share them with me so I can ask them of Tristan at the end of this event. Um, So without further ado, let's dive in, Tristan. And um, what I'd love for you to do is to take us into your Stanford classroom where you study the ethics of human persuasion and your Google workplace where you worked as a design ethicist to help us understand your journey in understanding the dangers of social media. Thank thank you so much, um, uh, Gita. It's really an honor to be here with you in the Graduate School of Journalism and and part of this series. Um, uh, I actually, many people don't know this, but my my work that led me here was I actually worked with, I forgot his name, but he was part of the, the UC Berkeley Journalism School on my first startup called Apture, which is actually about deepening journalism and storytelling online. And I did that when I was in my very early 20s. So this is kind of bringing me full circle. And uh, it really is an honor to be with you. Um, you know, in terms of uh, my, my background, um, uh, you know, as is talked about in the film, The Social Dilemma, uh, I studied in, in a lab and as part of a class at Stanford called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Class that was connected to a lab run by a professor named BJ Fogg, which who was trying to apply all of the lessons that we knew about the psychology of persuasion are there levers in the human mind that are universal? Um, I have on my bookshelf books like Robert Cialdini's Influence, uh, Robert Greene's um, The 48 Laws of Power. Um, you could look at cult programming. You could look at um, you know, marketing textbooks. Uh, you could look at hypnosis. You could look at neurolinguistic programming. You could look at pickup, pickup artistry. These are all disciplines about essentially manipulation and influence. And this uh, class, uh, I was with you know, my co-founders and uh, my friends who were the co-founders of Instagram, Mike Krieger, and many other future alumni who would go on to uh, be within the ranks of the technology companies. And I want to state this very clearly, that the idea of this lab and this class was not to, you know, grow mustaches and twirl them until we could diabolically rule the world. 
It was really actually, how could we apply persuasive technology for good? Um, now that sounds creepy to some people, because if you know more about someone else's mind than they know about themselves, isn't that intrinsically kind of a specious, unethical relationship? But we're living inside of power asymmetries all the time, uh, I think is prevalent in our cur current cultural moment. Um, and just to give people a, a taste, you know, the idea of using persuasive technology for good, the co-founder of, of Instagram and I, uh, the first thing we worked on together in that class, this is way before Instagram, by the way, and before iPhones, this is a little project we called Send the Sunshine, which was the idea that uh, due to seasonal affective depression disorder, which some people are experiencing right now, if you've lived in uh, foggy or, or you know dreary places for too many days in a row, um, what if there was a persuasive technology that knew two friends and it knew the zip codes of both of those friends, it could query a server and get the uh, weather for both of those zip codes. And when one of those zip codes had seven days of bad weather, it could text the other friend and say, would you take a picture of the sunshine? and send it to your friend over there. So this is kind of a beautiful idea of persuasive technology, using and coordinating and orchestrating uh, more beautiful, uplifting experiences. And this is one tiny little example. And this is, keep in mind, before uh, the iPhone, actually. And that's using persuasive technology for good. But in the final um, class, we actually did these long projects on the future of persuasive technology. And I remember distinctly one of the groups basically saying, what if in the future we have a profile of every mind on the planet, and we know exactly what persuasive characteristics their mind responds to. Do they respond to the idea that the government can't be trusted? Do they respond to the idea that, you know, these five of their friends who they respect the most on these issues, if we use them and said they believe that this thing is true? Do they respond to appeals to authority? So if I say Stanford University or, you know, UC Berkeley or Harvard said something, and therefore it's more, it's more, it's more true. Um, and if you knew those levers in the human mind and you had that profile and then you could tune any message to any person, well, this is a pretty scary idea. And I remember think, feeling very uncomfortable. And this was in 2006. And I want to be very clear that the professor at Stanford, DJ Fogg, who, who really ran this program uh, and this inquiry, was concerned about the ethics of persuasive technology stretching all the way back to the late 1990s. He presented to the FTC about the dangers and ethics of persuasive technology but unfortunately, many of the alumni from that class went on to build some of these things. In fact, Cambridge Analytica is essentially a replica of what I've just described. It is a profile of the persuasive characteristics of each mind. Um, and that's essentially the world we have today. And I think when we get trapped in debates about free speech in social media or things like this, we really are treating speech as if it's this neutral transaction. You have a, a listener, you have a speaker, and they're just talking to each other, as opposed to looking at degrees of asymmetry of power. If on one side you have a supercomputer that has an avatar voodoo doll of each person on Earth and can literally simulate three billion variations of a message, an advertisement, a photo, uh, rearranging the keywords, and then knowing that whether the person has high openness, high conscientiousness, if they've already joined conspiracy theory groups, based on that, there's a huge asymmetry of power. And that's not free speech. That's free manipulation. And so I think we need to really think about and use, and that's why I appreciate you bringing up at the beginning, that we use the lens of persuasive technology and persuasion as one of the distinctive features of where we find ourselves with uh, social media today and all the, all the harms. Tell me about get, arriving at Google and working there. And what about that experience um, in, informed you and led you to where you are today in your thinking? 
Yeah. Um, well, so I, I landed at Google in 2011. Um, they actually acquired a kind of a failed startup that I had been working on. That was the one that we presented with the Stanford um, uh, Knight Fellows and then the UC Berkeley Journalism Program. I actually gave a lecture at UC <laughs> Journalism uh, class back back in 2006 or seven or something. Um, and uh, so I landed at Google as a product manager. I was CEO of the company and a co-founder, but I became a product manager and worked with the Gmail team. And I worked on that team for about a year working on some future looking features. And I got kind of frustrated and disappointed that here I was in kind of the belly of the beast where, um, you know, personally speaking, I had been addicted to email. Uh, I, you know, checked it way too often. I felt stressed out by email. It felt like a very overwhelming experience, information overload, all those things. And I thought if there's anyone in the world who cares about information overload, distraction and the addictiveness of email, I'm in the room with the designers who are making those decisions. There is no other room. This is the room of people. And that room was was the control room for influencing what a billion people, a billion users of Gmail at the time were seeing, feeling, and doing. And this is really prevalent. You go to any internet cafe before COVID and, and half the laptops have open you know, Gmail. So they're living in this kind of digital habitat. And I became concerned and frustrated, not just with Gmail. And I want to say this not like as some kind of enlightened whistleblower. It was really just noticing that our daily experience and my daily experience in technology was, didn't feel as fulfilling. It didn't feel like it was empowering. It felt like it was just increasingly about um, preying on our psychological vulnerabilities and stealing our time, and including many of my friends who were startup founders at the time, including the, the Instagram co-founders and the people who were competing with them, like uh, companies like Path by Dave Morin. Everyone was sort of competing to figure out what kinds of new notifications or uh, you know, slot <laughs> machines could I throw in front of your brain to get you coming back all the time. And uh, noticing all of that, I got very uncomfortable. I went for a weekend to San Santa Cruz Mountains with my friend who now became the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology, Aza Raskin. Uh, Aza, his father was Jeff Raskin, who started the Macintosh project at Apple. And we came back from the Santa Cruz weekend, and I thought, there's something fundamentally wrong with the tech industry's direction, which is this attention economy, this race to capture human attention. And that's what led to that presentation that's in the film, The Social Dilemma. Uh, which I raised this, I created a presentation, sent it to 10 colleagues that went viral at Google to 10,000 people. And uh, and then that led to becoming a design ethicist and working on the issues of how do you ethically influence uh, 2 billion people's thoughts and, and beliefs and choices when you were inevitably making choices about what is, you know, in, engulfing their uh, psychological experience on a daily basis. I mean, the film The Social Dilemma was um, so influential. I mean, it represents, I mean, all of us as journalists and the documentary journalists among us, I mean, we want to have impact. And that film had such impact in the first month. I, I know I'm repeating information you know already, but to think that 38 million households viewed it in the first month is nothing short of astonishing. And what I was wondering if you could tell us is what the impact of that film was on you and your work and what you've been doing since then. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the film was was an unbelievable um I think it it, showed, it broke all records for Netflix for documentary films, which is just no one anticipated this. And I, I want to make sure I'm clear. That's really the results. And the praise goes to the film team, uh, Jeff Orlowski, Larissa uh, Rhodes and her whole team, their whole team at, at Exposure Labs. That team had previously made two climate change films, one called Chasing Ice, the other called Chasing Coral. And Jeff was a class. Jeff, the director, was a classmate of mine at Stanford. Uh, and he had talked to me as this is kind of the extractive extractive model, but instead of applying it to the planet, we're applying it to the human mind and attention. We're drilling for attention. And it leads to a different kind of climate change 
not of the outer environment, but of the inner and intersubjective environment. Uh, and so I don't think anybody who worked in the film for three years, we, you know, it, it was really a long slog. Uh, we anticipated the impact. We knew we wanted it to come out before the election. One of the most amazing things about the film, um, it was seen, by the way, by a, now 100 million people in about 190 countries and in 30 languages. So in terms of impact, wow. it, it really just has blown us away and, and it resonates in so many places. I mean, India and Brazil, places with huge other misinformation problems, things like this. Um, so uh, we could have never anticipated it. I think, you know, it's one, one thing I'll say is, especially in the U.S., I think what the film does is it creates a new shared common ground for why and how we lost all this common ground. Because right now we kind of feel like we live in this dystopian fractured reality where no one sees the same reality. But the gift of the film, I think, is if more people see it, is it's a shared reference point. It's a shared place to stand on common ground about how and why we've lost common ground. And I think that's really critical. We even heard of pe from people who during the presidential debates between Biden and Trump with family members that they couldn't watch the debates with uh, and, and feel peaceful, that instead of spending the 90 minutes getting angry at the presidential debates, they spent those 90 minutes watching the social dilemma. And they were actually able to bond as a family and agree that this was what had been tearing them apart. So at least we can agree about that. And I think that gets to some of the later questions that I know we want to talk about around how do you really get out of this when you have this mass scrambling of our reality? Uh, because it's not like there's some magic button that Facebook or Twitter can press to just reassemble reality back together again and make sure we're all seeing the same things. Because we now have an epistemic fracture. We have a confirmation bias fracture. We have a trust fracture. We trust different sources. We have confirmation bias that's looking to confirm evidence based on a different foundation of things that we're looking for. Um, and I think that the fractures go so deep that unless we have something that's more cultural, that's a shared touch point, uh, we can't get out of it. Um, that's going to make me leap to one of the last questions I was going to ask you, which was someone I know telling me that he believes there's only a 25% chance for humanity to survive um, because we've lost the ability to have the dialogue that's essential to solving the problems, the two huge problems we have today, which is polarization and apocalyptic climate change. So in your opinion, are we doomed is it that bad? Is there hope? <laughs> um, well, you know, it's funny. I was on a, um, a call recently with some mentors and advisors some people who practice mindfulness. And we were just talking about how the existential threat to humanity is just a sleepness. If, if, if we are all not aware of what is happening, if everybody was aware of the timelines for climate change and the timelines for what has to happen by when, and everyone was literally internalizing that because one of the other books on my bookshelf I recommend for people is called State of Denial. And it's about how denial as a psychological um, phenomenon is necessary for human beings to sort of live with their day-to-day -day experience. So we tend to be not really in touch with the realities that face us. It's one thing to know about climate change. Another thing to actually live fully grounded in what that means and what choices I would make if I live inside of the timeline that extends from embodying that understanding. And so I, I think that if we don't have that shared understanding about these various problems, um, then, yeah, I think we're, we're obviously in deep trouble. I, I think at every step we have to ask, what would it take to reassemble that shared sense of reality? And that's why, you know, the thing that makes me hopeful is the film's impact, the film's impact on the tech industry, uh, the fact that so many people, I think, agree that this problem exists. I will admit that there's a different interpretation on the 
left, you know, progressive and Democrat side of the spectrum of the film than the, the interpretation of the film on the Republican side, who are more concerned about censorship and manipulation of elections. On the left, they view it more as this is why the right went crazy. And so there's still a fracturing of even what the film's meaning is. <laughs> uh, but I do think that, um, you know, I feel hopeful at least with you know, where we are and, and the common understanding that's starting to, to to get created. Obviously, the events of January 6th, I will, you know, first caveat by saying, I think really made that come to life. And just one inside story in the film, when Tim Kendall, who uh, came up with Facebook's business model, he was the president of Pinterest. And he, before Pinterest had brought the Facebook advertising business model to Facebook. And he has the line in the film that says, you know, when he's asked by the director, what are you worried about in the short term? And he said, civil war. And I remember when that line was in the film, and many of you might remember it, um, he actually said that line way back in, I think it was November 2019 or October 2019, before COVID, before the polarization was as vividly visible. And there was a lot of pressure to take that line out of the film because it felt like an overreach to what political state we were in. But for those of us who are monitoring the extremist groups and the recommendation systems and the QAnon and sort of all of that, uh, it did not at all feel like a far stretch. And it's interesting how January 6th, I think, made it come real for a lot of people who had doubted that this is, in fact, where we were. Um, just a question, um, putting on my reporter hat. Let me um, start with, um, just ask you about this famous statement you've made, which is that fake news spreads six times faster than true news. And I'm just wondering where you got that information from and how it's provable. Yeah, uh, that, that study specifically comes from a retrospective study from MIT. Uh, it's Deb Roy's lab, and his lab should deserve a lot of credit for the amazing work that they do. Uh, and it was looking back at fake news on Twitter and found retrospectively, due to a sample set, I think it was from 2016, that fake news had spread six times faster than true news. But you don't have to look at that as just sort of a one-off example. I think we can actually see that from an evolutionary perspective as a fundamental truth about how information in a viral information system works. So what I mean is, if you imagine two organisms like evolutionarily evolving in different directions, and one of those organisms on this side is constrained, it can only evolve and gain a new word or gain a new meaning for things that are true. So it's very limited and constrained in what directions it can say, what it can say, what it can speak to. So that space of truth is very constrained in how it can evolve. And if you look at the other space of being, being able to say or manufacture any sentence, to claim that the entire election was rigged, to say anything you want, um, and reassemble words based on whatever works, whatever get the, gets the most clicks, whatever gets uh, more likes, more shares, the less restrained, constrained actor is simply going to outcompete the constrained actor. I mean, if one guy's fighting with his hands behind his back and the other one's not, who's going to win? So if you, that's why if you just zoom forward and you say, what is that world going to look like when unrestricted information, you know, evolution competes against restricted truth-based information, this is the world we're now, I think, visibly living in. And it's very hard for people to, I think, recover uh, where we get to. Now, again, I think if we realize that this happened, you have to kind of rewind in your mind all of the biases, all of the scrambling of our meaning-making and sort of say, how do we humbly try to figure out what's true? And this is what I was excited to talk about. I think one of the roles of journalism is to help build a culture of deeper sense-making, of better humility, of figuring out how would we know that that's true? Uh, is there any conditions in which that's not true? Can I steel man the opponent's argument? Can I actually make their argument stronger than they're doing, as opposed to saying, oh, they're just uh, flat earther and they're crazy? You know, 
Um, so anyway, these are the kinds of things that I think we have to get into. Let's talk about psych- our psychological vulnerability to emotionally salient information. Um, can you explain how all of this works in inflicting harm in social media? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's another study by uh, a lab at NYU. Um, it's on, by the way, some of these are on our website at ledger.humanetech.com. We have a page called the Ledger of Harms, and it's a collection of research from the ecosystem about some of these various problems. I recommend people check that out. Um, one of those studies was about how for every word of negative moral emotional language you add to a tweet, it increased the retweet rate by 17%. So if you say, it's a disgrace, it's an outrage, how can they possibly write these kinds of words? For each one of those you add, it increases the retweetability because obviously emotions are, uh, this is actually Jaron Lanier's point, emo- negative emotions hit the brain more strongly than positive emotions. They also stay around longer. If you think about how long when you're mad does it take to dissipate the hormones through your system? Do you immediately switch back to being fine or does it take a little bit of time for that those negative emotions to leave? So there's a stickiness to the negative emotions. You know, another example, because the film talks about the impact on kids, is if you think about, this is true, by the way, of all human beings. Um, you know, Gita, if you had a photo you posted on Instagram and you had 100 comments and 99 of the comments about you were positive, but one of the comments is negative, where does your attention go? I want to ask you just about journalism because um, 20 years ago, people made, um, were always criticizing journalism for some of these um, same um, harmful behaviors, for example, like the story of a car crash being the lead in a local news report, or even the story of a murder being on the front page as opposed to a story about environmental policy. Um, To what extent, can you explain why journalism hasn't had a comparatively harmful effect? Um. Well, so I think these problems pre-existed social media. So I appreciate, obviously, this is all uh, coming up because, you know, partisan television and uh, journalism, yellow journalism, are sort of doing the car crashes and the, you know, think of late TV uh, news here in California. You know, someone died, there was a stabbing. These kinds of things have have existed for for a long time. But um, if you think of it in an attention economy, that's why you came up with this phrase, the race to the bottom of the brainstem. Because it's game theoretic. If you have a bunch of journalists who are out there, and let's say you have a bunch of values-driven journalists, and they actually wait to figure out what's true. They call several people to double confirm the facts. They write the headline in a more calm and nuanced way. They don't include the photo of the, you know, the, the gruesome thing that happened. Uh, there, but then imagine that all those peaceful values-aligned journalists, they're competing against this other journalist who shows up, who shouts the most outrageous things, who puts the photo right at the top, who exaggerates and salacious, we're only as good as who we're competing with. And in that race, if the competition, this race to the bottom of the brainstem means a race to the reptile brain, a race to sort of um, who's doing the worst thing. It's the same as in, you know, sustainability. You have peaceful tribes and sustainable tribes, but they just get killed by the unsustainable warlike and extractive tribes. So one of the fundamental problems we have to face in many of our problems is just game theory, that the least ethical actor will tend to outcompete in the short term Uh, the ethical actor, because by definition, having values, things that you're willing to do and not willing to do, means constraining yourself compared to someone who doesn't have values, who's just doing whatever works in a micro, you know, um, incremental way. 
And so when you add in technology, you now add in that technology is allowing you to split test a million things that could work. When I think about Donald Trump, I think about someone who was tweeting all the time to test literally which phrases, which words, which reactions would get the most response from his crowd. He had the most instant, I mean, forget Frank Luntz, who's someone I know, who's a Republican pollster. Uh, Donald Trump had Twitter to be able to get immediate polling data on literally uh, everything that came out. In fact, I actually heard of someone who was in uh, his his briefings with him at the White House, and he would uh, be at the meeting, he would listen to everyone's arguments, then he would silently leave and he would tweet. And based on the, the responses of would come back, he would know what was politically appetizing and what was not. And I think that's what we have to really be watching out for is actors that are willing to say or do anything and to figure out what works, not what's good for us. Um, let's talk about social algorithms. I'm often asked about them. And um, I explain based on what I've read, but you've been there. Is there a human behind there somewhere? Like, who is Oz? Is it Zuckerberg or Dorsey? Or what's going on there? And how does it work? And how does it? How has it led us to this chaotic situation? Yeah, well, I think a, a lot of people, you know, it's so funny, looking back eight, five, four years ago, people thought, well, technology is just a neutral tool. I mean, with Facebook, let me steal man their argument. You know, I picked my friends, right? You didn't pick me my friends. I have my friends. I clicked on the articles I clicked on. I liked what I clicked on and liked. So why are we blaming Facebook for the problems where you know each user is just clicking on their own things? What I hope that the social dilemma really gave um, you know culture is this understanding of behind the screen. You see those three artificial intelligence agents. One, you know, one played by Vincent Cartizer, who's uh, the actor in Mad Men. Um, and the idea of the AIs is they're trying to scheme a little bit and figure out what would get Ben, who is the character in the film, the teenage boy, to come back. And so they say, should we try the ex-girlfriend? Is that going to work? Let's try the ex-girlfriend. That always tends to, to work to get him back. Um, you know, should we try the photos of the skateboarding fails? So the guy, the skateboarding video fails. Um, and so what we really have is this sort of machine that's probing and testing and is kind of mustache twirling in its own mechanical way to figure out what's the perfect thing to stimulate you. So every time you flick your finger on Instagram or on Facebook or on TikTok, essentially you've set off a competition between three supercomputers pointed at your brain that have this avatar voodoo doll-like model of you. And those are the, the quote unquote, the algorithms are the sort of computations that are run to figure out what would stimulate the nervous system of this voodoo doll. So when I say voodoo doll, I mean like here's sort of digital Gita, right? And based on all of your... Um, you know, likes, comments, etc. what you've clicked on, what videos you've watched, we're adding more hair to the voodoo doll than we add little pants to the voodoo doll because each thing you've done, all the little data trails are essentially like making the voodoo doll a little bit more accurate over time. And then what you can do is you can split test, say if, if I showed Gita this video versus this video, it can, it can predict which video will actually keep you there for the next 10 minutes and which one won't. And then when you ask, how does that lead to political polarization and a breakdown of truth? Well, imagine a newsfeed that every time you flick your finger, it shows you something that's personalized to you, that's, that confirms your view of reality, versus this other newsfeed where every time you scroll it, it's not personalized to you. Which one's going to get be better at keeping your attention? Well, the one that confirms your view of reality and gives you more and more personalized Truman Show. And so you take this shared fabric of reality and you put it through the Truman Show shredder into 3 billion independent channels. And that's why it feels like we're each living not just our own reality, but our own history, because we're 10 years into this process. It's been devastating for fact-based, credible journalism. Um, I mean, I'm going to just 
read you some of the statistics, which you already know, but half of the people under the age of 30 now get most of their political news on social media. Um, ad revenue has dried up. It's um, It fell by 62% in the decade leading up to um, 2018. And 25% of the 9,000 news publications that were being published 15 years ago have died. Um, And can you help us just understand the connection between what's been going on in social media and just the devastating blow that the journalism industry has suffered? Yeah. Well, um, I think that you know, the big technology companies have unfortunately hollowed out, um, you know, the fourth estate progressively um, because, um, you know, their goal, I actually remember because I was in the room when uh, her name was, I think, Alison Rosenthal. She was the first head of business development at Facebook, and she was pitching the various news publishing websites to put the the first Facebook, uh, at the time it was the share button, but it's really the predecessor to the like button. The idea that you're on a news site, you're on The Economist, you're on The Washington Post, and then you could hit share and they would share the article to Facebook. And Facebook was actually convincing all these news publishers, including the Washington Post, because Don Graham was on their board in the beginning, um, oh. to add this uh, this button, which was basically tricking all of the news industry into giving Facebook all this data. Because not only was it making Facebook a bigger and bigger source, sort of a starting place, the home you know, web page that you start at before you get to the news sites, but it also, once they had your co- the code on the journalist website, they could track where everyone was going. So even if you didn't click it, they could know that, oh, that user that's logged in, you know, Gita 14536, that's the same user that just showed up on that Washington Post page. So they were building and assembling that voodoo doll, not just when you click on Facebook, but as you're browsing around all these news publishers, they're also putting little hair in the voodoo doll, clothing on the voodoo doll, like, you know, uh, shirts in the voodoo doll. Um, and, and all that led to Facebook getting better and better at building these predictive models and making money on Facebook. And then every time they send traffic to the publishers, they're giving you a little penny, but really all the revenue comes from the fact that they're staying on Facebook, uh, on Google, on TikTok, et cetera. And what that has done, I mean, obviously there's sort of multiple stages to, you know, journalism's declining revenue, including, you know, first Craigslist and classifieds, then moving from print subscriptions to online and fewer and fewer subscriptions to an entirely digital online presence to fewer people subscribing. And then because fewer people are subscribing, you have to charge more per user, but then very few people (laughs) do that. And so it's this sort of autocatalytic feedback loop that makes it harder and harder for the fourth estate to fund itself. I do think we're going to need some kind of mass reparations to fund and, and really revitalize the fourth estate. I mean, if you don't have um, a local newspaper covering what's happening locally, there's essentially no accountability. And I think that's, uh, you know, where we are. And this is what's going behind, I know, the, the Australia and other countries threatening to take their, their content off of uh, Google. Um, so I want to ask you about Australia. I want, let's move to solutions. Um, and let, I mean, I know just Australia on its own cannot solve this problem, or even one approach can't solve this problem because it's uh, so deep. But what do you think of Australia's idea of requiring Facebook and Google to pay for news content they share, pay the news publications for the content they share? What do you think of that? And is that a possible part of a solution worldwide? Well, certainly the the economics have to flow in the direction of, I mean, it's, it's a very extractive model, right? I mean, they, they essentially make all the <laughs> money off of the publishers. Uh, Google will, you know, also make money with the ads that they'll show on the publisher's website, but then they make all this money when you're just on Google, et cetera. 
Um, and I, yeah, I do think there needs to be an economic uh, sort of rev share uh, kind of model, but it's very tricky to say how that will fully work. I mean, essentially what's happened is due to the increasing amounts of public pressure, both Facebook and Google have funded, I forget how much, but these big grant programs where they'll just say, we're putting $100 million into funding public news. We're putting a $10 million, but they're always doing it response in response to the outrage that there's less and less journalism, not as they're doing. We need a model that is self-regenerative, not, hey, we destroy the environment. We do a scorched earth on for the fourth estate. And then afterwards, we toss them a few pennies to see if they can kind of regrow some new stuff again. But really, we've already, you know, emptied out the the, the earth. Um, I think that's, you know, I'm not an expert on exactly how Australia is framing its laws, but I do think there needs to be economics that fundamentally strengthens the fourth estate, not predates on it and profit keeps the profits for the, uh, the major companies. I found the opinion piece you wrote for the Financial Times last year really um, interesting because you put forward some solutions. Um, and I was wondering if you could help us understand some of them. Like one of them, you talked about um, um, social media as an attention utility <laughs> and said that, you know, just as phone companies and power companies have to get licenses, an attention utility should have to get a license because this network is as larger, if not larger, or, and more important um, or equally important um, as the telephone or power or these vital services. Can you just explain a little about how how that might happen, like what your thinking was, how it would work? Well, implementing it would be would be very difficult. I think it's more just getting people. One of our, our major jobs we try to do um, in our work at the Center for Humane Technology is just offer frameworks for people to think in that are more generative than the kind of infinite black hole of free speech versus censorship, <laughs> which you're just never going to get anywhere. You're just going to have the same conversation you've always <laughs> yeah. had, and someone's going to bring up the counterexample to the counterexample. <laughs> so that's not very helpful. So why, why would we even talk about something like attention utilities? Well, Fundamentally, we have to ask, what is the common resource, the common environmental resource that is being mined or extracted, that we only have so much of it? So we have to realize the attention economy is finite. There's only so much human attention. When you run an infinite growth profit motive on top of a finite substrate, just like with the planet, if you have an economic system that demands infinite resource extraction, so long as it's paired with resource extraction, from a finite planet, that's intrinsically self-terminating. In the same way, if you have companies that make money, the more attention they get living on a finite substrate of human attention, and your business model is just sucking the attention out of people, um, that's also <laughs> self-terminating. Uh, so we have to have a, a self-protecting measure. You could say, what are the national parks of the attention economy? You could say, what are the zoning laws? You could say, how do we extract? What are the rules for extraction? Just like we don't prevent people from tearing down any trees, but we want to make sure that it's within the regenerative capacity of a forest. So we don't want to make people not necessarily monetize some attention, but we need to make sure that it's not taking out the regenerative capacity of society or trust. So attention utilities is a framework where we realize that there is a commons, an attention commons that we have to protect just like we protect national parks uh, or our outer environment. Um, and right now, I mean, this is a very obvious metaphor for so many people, but just we have a system that's based on extracting and polluting and depleting that attention commons and ruining the quality of attention that we're, we have available for other things, whether it's the quality of attention we have to pay to a future advertisement or the quality of attention that we're left to pay to our children or to our democracy. Everyone feels overwhelmed. And that's, that's mm -hmm. kind of where this gets uh, really problematic. But the main point of that article was just to say, we need to have some ground rules for protecting what is the commons, what is the resource that we're all sharing. 
You have different metaphors for this too. You have the FAA saying we have common airspace. We need to have common coordination rules about how we use the common airspace. Um, so anyway, we could go on for a long, a long ways, but that's kind of the core idea. I was also intrigued by um, a new, the new business model that you proposed, which was a subscription-based model. And you drew the examples from Netflix, where people pay for a subscription, or BBC. Um, do you think that would work? Can you see it happening? <laughs> There's two aspects here. So the reason why it's not happening, I think, should be very obvious to people, which is it makes a lot more money to not charge people for products, but then to just out, you know, over manipulate them and ruin society on, on top. I mean, by the way, with no, there's no conscious intention by any one of the tech companies and anyone I've ever met in the tech industry to harm children, create depression, to create political polarization. This is so much by accident and through natural competition with, with other companies. We could move to a subscription model. Here's the problem. Obviously, there's still going to be a competition for attention. So now you have Facebook competing for a subscription. You have YouTube competing for a subscription. You have <laughs> uh, Twitter competing for a subscription. But guess what? Those business models still depend on you spending enough time on those services that you would want to pay that monthly fee. So um, just like Netflix, the reason why, by the way, that Netflix does the autoplay, 54321, here's the next thing. I think that's still on. Um, is because they also need to justify you paying that whatever it is, eight or nine dollars a month. And if you're not using Netflix often, eventually you'll burn out and not subscribe. So I think we have to balance several concerns here. I think instead of thinking about subscription, what we really want to make sure is that society is the customer and not the product. Um, meaning that we can't have it be the case that our behavior, our predictability, our manipulatability is the product. Um, and I think that the end of the film, The Social Dilemma, really nails this when Justin Rosenstein, who's the co-inventor of the like button, says, the fundamental problem is just like an unregulated capitalism, if you don't have certain kind of guardrails for what you're protecting, so long as a whale is worth more dead than alive, we're going to kill a bunch of whales. So long as a tree is worth more as two by fours than as a tree, we're going to turn trees into two by fours. In this model, in the attention model, uh, we're more profitable as dead slabs of human behavior, predictable human behavior, because that meant the business model was successful. And again, it doesn't have to be this way. We can create boundaries and guardrails and national parks and zoning laws that say, hey, this is the kids section. Hey, this is politics. Let's have a fairness doctrine. Hey, this is, you know, how we want our society to work. But we need to think about it like a big urban plan that we're designing consciously, not the kind of unregulated extraction we have now. On the idea of just thinking about social impact, I was interested by um, an idea you put forward about a social impact assessment, similar to an environmental impact assessment. Um, can you talk about this idea and uh, how it would work and how how we might bring it about? Because it like, sounds like such a great idea. Well, I think so the, the principle that underlies something like a social impact assessment is that the greater the power, the greater the responsibility you have. Um, you know, if I'm just going to get up on a soapbox and speak to 10 people, you know, yes, I should be a responsible person for, you know, maybe making noise on a crowded street, but really I can't harm that many people. But if I'm a broadcaster like the BBC and I can defame or destroy someone's reputation by getting the facts wrong, I have a responsibility to make sure that I don't do that. And you can, you know, or if you think about it in terms of power asymmetries, um, before we get into social impact assessment, I want to make just one metaphor here, which is about how much the technology companies know about you that you do not know about yourself. So the, the real thing going on here, if you think about like uh, any um, business relationship 
where one party has a compromising degree of asymmetric knowledge about you that you do not know about yourself. Think about a lawyer. They know everything about the law. They have all the information that you've shared, all the vulnerable information about you. They can't have a business model that says, yeah, who wants to pay me to get that information so you can manipulate Tristan? That would be a ridiculous business model. Imagine a therapist who everyone who they heard in the therapist room, um, everything they heard about the person's, you know, weird fantasies and, and vulnerabilities and biggest doubts, fears and anxieties. And they said, oh, yeah, that stuff I learned in the therapist room, who was going to pay me to you know, perfectly manipulate Tristan? Both those cases, a lawyer is licensed to have that asymmetric position with the client. They have to operate. They can lose their license. They can never practice again. There's high reputational costs. Same thing with a therapist. You have a, a license. You can lose your license. There's high reputational costs. Technology companies have, you think that lawyers or doctors or, or therapists have information about you. Technology companies have a exponentially more information about you that you do not know about yourself that is compromising. They should be in a fiduciary relationship with you that is kind of a licensed relationship. And they should be losing that license if they are not appropriately uh, protecting that asymmetric relationship because they're in a position to massively harm others. So when you say social impact assessment, it's basically when I have the, pow the power to create harm that is irreversible, especially... That kind of power, we should be doing um, precautionary principle assessments up front about what we could, uh, you know, what harm we could cause. Just like, you know, if you're upgrading your house or something like that, you have to do some kind of uh, licensing or assessment or things like that. Now, the question is, what's the balance between the rate of evolution of technology and what kind of regulational, you know, uh, slowdowns and frictions that we want to add to the system? Who could you see overseeing all of this. I know in Europe, you suggested a directorate. In the US, there's like the FCC or the FTC. Who would it be? And does it need to be the government? Or who could you see doing it? Yeah, I mean, this is a very complex question, because the, it is. yeah, <laughs> I, we're, what we're really entering is a phase where I think people are recognizing, especially post the banning of Trump from Twitter and the deplatforming of major tech platforms, Parler, etc. People are realizing that the digital infrastructure is the democratic infrastructure. It's our society. You know, we get paid or not through PayPal and Stripe or whatever. We sell things with, you know, these online Shopify's and things like that. We email each other with digital products. We communicate and spread knowledge and broadcast to each other exponentially through YouTube, Facebook, etc. So the digital infrastructure is the democratic infrastructure. It's what it means to participate in society. And I think this kind of crept up on us. And the reason I'm saying this is technology has eaten up every single aspect of children's education, of growing up, of social relationships, of identity formation, of pol politics, of political discussion, of election advertising. Um, and if you're taking over a core function of a society, think about a company that wants to manufacture voting machines. You have to be, you can't just say, here's, a, here's some new company on the market and there's no regulations to make sure they do it in a fair, transparent, and honest way. You have to do it in a fair, transparent, and honest way. You have to have it to be regulated because you're taking over such a core f function of a society. And that's what we really need with, with um, technology. We're, we can't just regulate social media. We have to ask, as technology eats up all these other social organs, when it eats up children's mental health, is the FCC regulate that? Or is there some new regulator that regulates that? Or do we take the Department of Education as I said in a congressional hearing uh, two months ago, I mean, uh, a year and a half ago, um, and we give it a digital update. So if you think about, we have these institutions that already care about kids' education. We have institutions that care about election advertising. We have institutions that care about communication standards. Um, we used to protect Saturday morning cartoons. We could have those existing institutions be digitally upgraded to make sure that where they have jurisdiction 
about whether it's children's television or um, children's education, that they're basically monitoring for those harms and forcing those companies to be gradually reducing those harms or doing the impact assessments for those harms ahead of time. So that's one way you could scale it, if that makes sense. You have these existing institutions, we could give them a digital update and then have them have the jurisdiction over the technologies that are taking over those core parts of society. But this is very complicated because, you know, they may not have the expertise to do it. And you're going to need a whole bunch of new people with the expertise who understand how these systems work, especially as technology is continuing to evolve faster. A year from now, we're going to have a different set of platforms (laughs) than we have right now. So taking you to like the most difficult question and the one that usually is, stops all discussion, and that's the question of um, the First Amendment and freedom of speech. And I was just wondering, how much do you think it really limits solutions to the to this crisis in the U.S.? To what degree? And like, are, do other countries have a better shot at addressing this crisis than we do because they have a different relationship with free speech? You know, that that is, yeah, as you said, the, the big question. I think when free speech encompasses everything, including the technology platform itself, your ability to make a technology platform, it, it's sort of this blanket that we can wrap around anything and it gives it just a free pass, a carte blanche to say, well, there's nothing we can do about that. And I think that's just an inadequate uh, moral framework. Um, so I, I, I do think, you know, that might mean that other countries get there faster. Um, you know, it, it's so hard to keep track of everything because each country is gradually producing its own answers to these questions. And we've been in touch with with several different governments. But um, I I think we can't use the language of free speech anymore. I would, I would challenge people when you're tempted to use the language of free speech, what's a different way to describe the specific thing you're talking about? So for example, when I can broadcast uh, and split test a message and micro, for example, I can right now go into a conspiracy theory group on Facebook. I can get the user IDs for everyone in that conspiracy theory group. I get the QAnon user IDs. Then I can say, hey, Facebook, I'm going to create an advertising campaign that says using your lookalike models, lookalike models tell Facebook, hey, give me 10,000 users who have the same psychological attributes as those conspiracy users I just gave you. And Facebook is happily giving me access to the very specific voodoo dolls that it has in its backyard, and it plucks them out for me. And it says, hey, these are the users that look just like those other conspiracy theory users. Now, as an advertiser, I can split test 20 different conspiracy messages to those that voodoo doll assembly, you know, thing that I just picked up. If we call that, is that speech when I'm speaking to them by doing this entire process? No, we have to see that in terms of the degree of asymmetry of power. I knew something about them that they didn't know about themselves. I was able to select an additional group of people that didn't know they're being targeted I was able to split test messages and whisper one one thing into one person's ear and what whisper another thing into another person's ear, and they don't know that. That's all asymmetry of power. And so instead of saying, "Oh, well, just I'm speaking to them as an advertiser," I'm speaking to them when I just broadcast something on Twitter. We have to see things in terms of what degree of asymmetric power is there, and is there a commensurate level of responsibility? I think the biggest question when it comes to this is what is the responsibility framework for having power? And I think think of a blue check mark on Twitter. You know, you you gain a kind of driver's license for saying I'm a verified person on Twitter, but maybe that should come with increased responsibilities. If I go to buy a pair of knives at a kitchen store, I don't have to show an ID or get a background check or get training about how to use the kitchen knives, even though I could use them to harm someone. Um, but if I have a, if I'm going to go buy a, a sophisticated semi-automatic weapon, ideally there's a background check training required 
and uh, protocols in place to make sure that with the great power comes more great responsibility. So I think that's the principle we need to retrieve when we think about this new uh, age of, of speech, which is really just psychological influence with different degrees of asymmetric power. Clearly, um, people who have so much power, entities need to be more responsible. But how do we make them more responsible? People who wrap themselves in the free speech blanket argue that these social media platforms will become more responsible if we as citizens demand that they become more responsible. Is that the solution? No, clearly not. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, it's too little too late. Because, you know, if, if that's what it takes, then, you know, per your question about do we still have time, if that's what it takes, then the game is already over. Because this stuff gets worse before it gets better. And you don't want a world where you create more of the problem and pollution, and they sell a profit for, for you know, cleaning up the pollution later after the fact. Um, so no, we, we need to have a system that, in, that is intrinsically safe, intrinsically regenerative, intr- intrinsically constructive and harmonizing not where they continue to profit from, uh, from, from the problem. Apple's taken a tough stance against Facebook, or so it looks to just the ordinary citizen like me. Um, they're requiring um, users of Apple phones and laptops to actually consent to their digital information being extracted and used and sold. Um, is that helpful and how helpful um, before we go to that, I just want to make sure I answered your other, your earlier question um, correctly, but I just want to make sure I remember. Sure, sure, sure. Because um, oh, one of the things you asked about, what is it going to take for the social media companies to feel, to take the responsibility for these problems, right? And yes. um, an important trend people should be aware of is that later this year, Facebook has been building the infrastructure to encrypt all the conversations, meaning uh, the child human trafficking groups, all that stuff that they used to have integrity teams, they had to pay people to check when that was happening. The QAnon, the crazy conspiracy groups that they had to have integrity teams to try to figure out where are these things being planned. Um, that is all getting locked down into encrypted channels. So they're moving from we didn't know to we can't know. We didn't wow. know is res- there's some responsibility you can do after the fact. That's what everyone's pressuring them to do post-January 6th. Where this is going is we can't know. If you think about why Zuckerberg and co. are doing this, it is because it eliminates and absolves them of all responsibility. Because so all those costs that are currently associated with monitoring and getting into these political debates of should they deplatform that or should they look at that? Well, suddenly they're just encrypting it all because people were previously yelling about privacy in Cambridge Analytica. So they're saying, oh, fine, you want us to do privacy. We'll just encrypt everything, throw away the lock and key. And now whatever happens, it happens in the dark. People should know that because they should know how unsafe these platforms are. Uh, and we should eventually move off of this infrastructure. And I just say that because when you talk about what it's going to take for them to be responsible, we have to know how they're eliminating our tools of making them responsible with changes <laughs> like that. So now to your second question about Apple and the changes that they're making. Um, yeah. I just want to make sure our audience caught up with that. But you're basically talking yeah. about the, the changes they made uh, on iOS 14, which require that you to voluntarily consent when Facebook loads for the first time with the new iOS 14, it says this app wants to track you across applications. Do you consent to them tracking you? Here's what they would like to know. And most people, when given that choice, are probably going to say no. And that actually takes the kind of micro-targeted advertising reality that we're living in, where everyone has this you know, my, per- perfect manipulation of each person, into a more of a 1960s, 1970s billboard version of advertising, where we don't have as much tracking. 
And as you said, Facebook has been pushing back against Apple because it just drops the profitability per user when they can't track you everywhere. I think 85% of people in the test they did said no, they didn't want their information shared. Right. So what impact will that have on Facebook? And is that helpful and how helpful? Um, you know, I think it's it's a really good example of Apple nudging the entire industry in a direction that is less and less about treating us as the product and more about treating us as the customer. So essentially, the ability to micro-target each of us is treating us as the, the product. And by taking that away, they're, they're almost like a doing quantity. I think of Apple as kind of the Federal Reserve or the central bank or regulator of the attention economy. And what they just did by making it hard to track people is they kind of incentivized this, this non-extractive version of business models just by a little bit. It's just a tiny nudge of the whole ecosystem in that direction. And it's clearly threatening enough that Facebook is pulling out all the stops to try to fight back. And if you saw actually in Tim Cook's speech to the EU last week, he said explicitly, we cannot allow a social dilemma to become a social catastrophe, which in reference to the film. And so I think this is an example of things moving in the right direction because of the broad scale public awareness that this is not the reality in the world we can afford to live in. Why is Apple doing this? I mean, is it because it recognizes the crisis? Or is there some I mean, of course, I'm asking you to speculate, which is not what we usually do as journalists, but still, you're in a better position to speculate than I am. So do you have any insight into that? You know, it's probably a combination of, um, you know, seeing the problems at a human level and saying, you know, this this is a toxic system. Privacy is important. And they're making these changes. You could cynically say that it's good for their bottom line and good for business to knock out Facebook. Um, and that's where the kind of antitrust concerns against Apple are are being waged. And this is actually a good example of Russell conjugation, where you can um, you can conjugate the meaning of how you perceive this from an antitrust lens of Apple using its market dominance to just wipe Facebook off the map, or you can take it as a good faith move by human beings who see the pernicious problems of these business models and are trying to move the entire ecosystem in this direction. I think what we need here to, to distinguish between those two is something like better democratic governance for decisions like that. Because um, this is the same, by the way, this is the same thing as what happened when Trump got deplatformed, you know, um, there's two ways to fail. Um, you could have a world where uh, Jack Dorsey wakes up one morning and can autocrat autocratically like a dictator just decide to knock a person he doesn't like off of a platform. That's obviously a failure mode. You don't want that to be the governance for how we make those decisions. But the other way to fail is to allow this unrestricted Frankenstein where, where hate and authoritarianism and tyranny wins in the competition with calm voices. For That's the other way to fail. So we can't have that, but we need to have democratic decision-making. We need to have some kind of accountable governance. So when Apple makes a move to change the business models of the entire app store, when um, you know Twitter makes a move to change the deplatforming logic or the rules and enforcement, those should be more democratic. And so I think we have to move the whole industry into having technology companies be more accountable to the public interest. The question is, what is that structure? Who decides and who decides <laughs> who decides? <laughs> um, on, on that note, I'm going to... Um... Um, make some room for audience questions. I, I, I have many more questions I'd like to ask myself, but um, in the interest of democracy and because we respect our audience who are so smart and so interested, let me um, just begin with some of the questions, that, some of the 99 questions that were sent um, before this even started. Do you see any, I mean, since you're in the space that you're in and a leader in um, 
pushing thinking about the this crisis. Do you know? I mean, does what's going on in the Biden administration? Are they thinking about something like a 9/11 commission? Are they deeply in, worried about this problem? Sorry, I'm trying to fix my my camera. Sure, sure. We'll uh, give you a pause while you do. I don't know why it's doing that. Um, the uh, I think that the you know I, I have not been in touch directly with the Biden administration. Um, uh, I, I do know that these are active conversations that are going on there. Um, I worry that the conversation is too narrow and it's on issues like privacy and Section 230 instead of um, on the more systematic, like how do we restore um, a social fabric? How do we restore trust? Um, how do we restore media that is trustworthy? Uh, so I don't think that's the conversation that needs to happen, that that's been happening yet. And I think that's the conversation that needs to happen. Sorry, I'm still going to work on this. To see okay, continue it, to work on it okay, while I ask you your next question. Yes. So this is a narrower question. This is from a member of the audience saying, what links does Tristan see between this problem, so this crisis, um, this polarization, this crisis in social media, and what happened on January 6th or the rise of QAnon? So how did this issue Well, it's link, perfectly contribute? linked. Um, I think people too often jump... Um, to say what I think it's not, I think people often too often jump to Facebook was just where the January 6th events were organized. And it was just about Facebook was being used to organize those things, as opposed to um, Facebook was a um, uh, was was part of an ongoing process from 10 year for 10 years that put people into these narrower and narrower echo chambers. Uh, Matt Stoller uh, actually just wrote a piece for his newsletter, Big, in which he calculated that Facebook would have uh, made about $2.9 billion from QAnon. Um, he calculates it in his own way. And so please don't cite me on that. You can look at the way that he calculates it. But um, what, I, what I mean by this is that Facebook recommended people into these extremist groups. So for those who don't know, there's a great Wall Street Journal um, expose from May of 2020, in which they reveal the internal documents at Facebook, where they actually said, for the extremist groups that people joined, um, I think it was 64% of the extremist groups that were joined on Facebook were due to Facebook having put up a panel that said, here's groups we recommend you join. So why did this happen? Just to quickly explain this to people, uh, our, my colleague, Renee Diresta, uh, who's a rock star and has studied <laughs> this forever and deserves lots of credit, um, uh, she found that the Facebook group recommendation system puts people into these crazy uh, chain conspiracy chains. So for example, as a new mom, she joined a Facebook group on creating baby food, organic do-it-yourself baby food, not buying the regular stuff. And what do you think was the most recommended Facebook group uh, to people who were in a do-it-yourself baby food group? It was anti-vaccine conspiracy theory groups for moms, moms against vaccines. When you join that group, what did the Facebook system recommend? It recommended Pizzagate, Flat Earth, Chemtrails, QAnon. And so the point is that once you get into one, it says, oh, Facebook, you're, you're, Facebook says, oh, you're like that kind of person. You might also like these other uh, crazy things. And so that has been going on for something like 10 years. So when I look at January 6th, I see the results of a, a 10-year-long process that was pulling people into these crazier and narrower views of reality where you get social affirmation, validation, meaning, purpose, community from this very strange belief system about the world being run by a global pedophile uh, elite. And and I think that's, you know, where, where we are now. Um, yeah, just the parallel to 
the grooming process. Yeah. I mean, is just terrifying. It's automated um, grooming, right? We don't have to pay people to do this sort of by hand conversation. <laughs> yeah. grooming. We have an automated system that does it for us. I want to say one last thing about that. The reason this happened was actually due to Mark Zuckerberg with a positive intention. You can look at the uh, report in 2018, January. He said, our new goal, if you remember, they changed their mission statement from making the world more open and connected. That was the old mission statement to the new one was bring the world closer together. And the way he said we're going to do that is through Facebook groups because Facebook groups provide community. And um, Hmm. he said, so what do we do? We actually built an AI that recommended groups for people to join. And he's quoted in saying it works. It actually increased the amount of groups people Hmm. can join by more than 50%. So he... They thought they were doing this good thing by putting people into groups because they had this narrative. These are like cancer support groups. These are mom <laughs> support groups. These are, you know, sports soccer clubs. Not these are crazy town conspiracy theorists that are driving the kind of breakdown of our uh, shared society and shared reality and getting past this pandemic. I guess, I mean, unintended consequences seem to be. Which is why you'd have a social impact assessment, you know, if you're building something like that, right? If you're going to do something that's going to impact that many people with an algorithm, uh, you would have to have a deep understanding of what consequences, first order, second order, third order consequences that you could be causing. With that great power comes great responsibility and and need for godlike awareness. I mean, you would, I know just as an educator, we, if we were just to make decisions on our own, just talking to each other as professors, we would just make big mistakes. Engaging our community and especially our students is vital, vital to um, cover, you know, opening, opening up our, our blind spots. So it seems like, I mean, a social impact assessment would provide that opportunity. Insist on that, or insist on that consultative. Yeah, and have uh, a diversity, dialogue. and have a diversity of views who are going to be most affected. Because one of the biggest problems now that is unfortunately not covered as much in the film, but is all the marginalized groups uh, and and people, you know, who don't have as much of a voice, who are actually most impacted, but don't have a voice in the decision making. Um, you know, you have places like Myanmar, which is covered in the film, where you had a genocide that was amplified by Facebook, and now you have Ethiopia. I'm trying not to be so negative. I'm sorry, but it's just these are. Unfortunately, realities where, you know, how many people at Facebook had, you know, employees, how many employees from from Myanmar or Ethiopia did they have at Facebook while these things were going on? And by the way, you can extrapolate this principle saying, would Instagram be so toxic for teenage girls if the team that was running Instagram were mothers of teenage girls? They have skin in the game. So they would see this problem. They would say, no, we have to do something about that. It would become a high priority as opposed to a low priority for the you know, mostly white male engineers who kind of run Instagram. If you had Facebook who was you know, uh, run by people who had uh, come out of the Soviet disinformation uh, landscape and they were running Facebook and they had had that experience, they would have gotten on top of the Russia disinformation problem much earlier or even now Chinese disinformation or Saudi disinformation There's many, com- many countries that are doing it. But we're, we're, over and over again, we see that we need the diversity of views that represent the stakeholders most being affected and where this could go wrong. Um, so on, on children, um, uh, someone is asking, how can we educate our children to differentiate the myriad sources they experience? Struggling as an adult to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very hard. Um, I feel like this is actually something where I wish there was just a massively publicly funded um, new effort to sort of explicitly say we need a new um, 
not that we need to remake things, but people don't trust even our publicly uh, interested uh, news and journalism institutions, unfortunately, because it's become partisan. Um, uh, you know, I, I think people, there's a great, there's a lot of things I could say about this. Uh, people should have diverse, you know, information sources that they're getting their information from, actively read uh, what people from the opposite political side, the wise opposite of the political side that, that you, you know, read. I spend a lot of time looking at uh, media from different, different sides and different sources. Um, I don't think there's a silver uh, bullet here. I think we need a much more common education. There's lots of groups that work on that kind of thing, by the way. There's a training by a group called IREX, I-R-E-X, I believe. Um, that has some good stuff for, uh, for, for people around, around critical thinking and, and misinformation spotting. I know um, uh, Berkeley Journalism is expanding its undergraduate program, um, aiming to teach journalism skills to undergraduates, um, not necessarily to become journalists, but to be citizens in a digital age. So being able to just understand how to verify sources and how to recognize if something is well-sourced and what is a credible source and those kinds of things. But that, is, of course, catches you much later. You know, you're 18 to 22 years old then. Um, but let me ask you um, another question from, from the audience. Misinformation is also spread by official news networks like Fox, not only through social media. How can networks be held accountable for spreading misinformation? <laughs> I know yeah. we're asking you to find all the solutions, <laughs> but what but are your thoughts about that? Because that, that, that comes to my mind all the time, all the time as, as we've been focusing on social media. media. But as I, I uh, turn, turn on, on Fox, Fox um, um, to see, to see how, how they're talking, talking about, about a particular event, um, I mean, honestly, and I just wonder. So tribalism has replaced epistemology on both sides. So people are in general looking at information that their tribe affiliates with. And then when information, when, when even terms come in, like if someone says Wuhan lab hypothesis, they say, oh, you must be a pro-Trump right-wing xenophobic person. So you can't actually do epistemology of how would we know, how would we not know. If someone says, you know, we are for masks or we are against masks, they have basically declared and painted themselves which tribe they're a part of, as opposed to, well, we could actually have a conversation epistemologically about you know, how do we know that masks work, what, you know, et cetera. Most people who know, who think that flat earthers are dumb, can't themselves prove that, you know, flat earth, uh, how, how we know that the earth is, is round. Um, so I think we need it in general to remove ourselves from tribalist sources of information and the outrage economy. So I would actually recommend everybody uh, unfollow, not watch, get everyone else they know to not look at things like Fox News, OANN, or MSNBC, and any of the kind of extreme outrage media that is really not good for democracy anywhere. Because one of the subtle things about how technology has affected um, journalism is it's made all journalism have to cater to get those clicks because journalist organizations have started to measure the success of their news and journalism employee employees by how many clicks that they get. And that's also altered the character of how journalists, I think, produce information to accommodate those incentives. And it's much like a child who is getting used to getting uh, validation in terms of likes and comments it changes the meaning of validation in terms of, do I get likes for that? And I think we're all being tuned and incentivized, trapped in this kind of matrix of, of bad incentives, of shallow incentives. And it's happening for journalists, it's happening for teenagers, it's happening for democracy, it's happening for outraged conspiracy theorists, it is, is happening across the board. Do you think it's happening um, for our best journalism institutions? I mean, do you see that slide in... And I just won't mention names, but just the the main ones you think are fabulous. Do you see that slide? Like, is deciding to call? I mean, this this example 
may be helpful and may not be, but in deciding to call Trump's falsehoods a lie, does that push you into a little bit of tribalism, just that slight bit yeah, that I then it, makes you not believable to someone who's a Trump supporter? Yeah, I think I think it does. I think that's what our challenge is. How do we communicate with the utter humility where we would say, how would we know if that side is correct? Like, right? It's funny because I think when Trump came out against uh, promoting hydroxychloroquine, to even say anything positive about hydroxychloroquine meant you were part of the, you know, if you're in California in the Berkeley sort of, uh, you know, Bay Area complex, you're part of the dumb Trump machine or something like this. Um, and instead of saying, well, actually, there's some scientists and doctors now who actually, you know, think that there's a, some reasonable uh, ways to use that treatment, but they would never say so publicly because they're worried about getting tagged <laughs> for being political and being, say, you know, uh, a right wing uh, you know, Trump supporter or something like that. And I think what we really need, and this is the thing that journalists can do, is how can they demonstrate good faith how would we know that it's this? How would we know that it's not this? Let's go through that process. And showing that process honestly, which again requires time. This is why we need a different digital ecosystem that gives us time. One of the nice things about podcasting or long Zoom conversations is people actually have the time to slow down and actually do a process like that. And I think, I mean, I think including in this conversation, when we slow down and we actually break down each of the steps, people trust you because you're actually saying something that's logically true as opposed to saying, the baseless idea that hydroxychloroquine does this, the baseless thing that, you know, the Wuhan lab hypothesis, even if those things, even if it might be true that they're not legitimate, saying the baseless blah, blah, blah is essentially painting you as which tribe you're on. And I think losing trust in a common audience from a common audience. And I think people are yearning for a kind of, um, you know, a fair and trustworthy media. And I think that's, like I said, I think it's something that the 9-11 Commission for Restoring Trust should, should kind of look at. And perhaps definitely on a wide scale, including journalism, but maybe journalism organizations can take a step and just look at themselves also sure. ahead of that. But anyway, we're at time now, Tristan, and I just want to thank you so much on behalf of Cal Performances, Berkeley Journalism, the world for just bringing your insight and your experience um, to us and sharing so so and trying to answer so many of these really really difficult questions on solutions um i just could not be more grateful we could not be grateful more grateful for your presence here today really really appreciate it and i, I what i really hope is that this talk and our conversation just inspires many more people to work on this problem because that's what we need right the that this is not something that some small group of people are going to go solve it's kind of like a decentralized immune system. And by each of us waking up, by seeing these patterns of what needs to change, we become part of the antibodies for culture to become more uh, you know, immune from this kind of reality-dividing virus that is the sort of other pandemic that we have. Uh, one last thing, I've been joking that it's almost like we had the Zuckerberg Institute of Virology, and he was playing with these mimetic viruses, and it jumped out of the lab and took over <laughs> the world and shut down the global economy because it actually shut down our ability to make sense of the world. And to become immune to that pandemic, what we're doing right now and what I hope so many people listening to this do when they see this is to become part of the process by which we figure out how do we recover trust? How do we you know, be good to each other instead of participate in the kind of outrage canceling machine? Uh, and, and how do we you know, really uh, make sure we can, we can constructively survive and make progress on the big problems that face us? So. Thank you so much for, for having me. I really sincerely appreciate the time for, for everyone tuning in. So thank you again. And um, we hope to 
have more conversations with you in the future as we all work to combat this virus that's that has escaped from the lab. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and thank you again to the Graduate School of Journalism for, for inviting me and everybody else, Jeremy Geffen uh, and, and others. So. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.